You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Before we start, I want to thank all of the We Are Libertarians patrons for being a part of the show. You can find out all of the benefits of subscribing on Patreon at joinwallplus.com. That's W-A-L-plus.com. You'll get bonus content, access to the complete archives. There's over a thousand shows that you can't get in the public feed, and you'll be supporting all of our great shows. Thank you especially to our $100 a month members, John Pusillo, Vincent Peichel, Lars Nordskog, Jakey Dell, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. We also want to thank our main sponsor for this episode. Uh, it is Iconic Insurance. 15% of Americans are left to find health insurance on their own. And even if you get health insurance from your employer that doesn't work for you, Matt Allen and Iconic Insurance can help you find the right insurance. Just head over right now and contact him at iconic-insurance.com slash libertarians. We'll put the link in the description if you can't remember that. But Matt is a longtime listener of this program and a great guy and a good friend of mine. So please go support him and reach out right now. Thank you. And now let's get started with our show. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program today. Uh, we have a very interesting program about water conservation and something that's happening in uh, Utah in the Salt Lake, the, at the Great Salt Lake, excuse me. And my guest is Micah Safeston, who works as a communications and outreach coordinator at the Utah Water Research Laboratory. He is also a contributor for Young Voices, where he writes about natural resources policy and water in the West. And his views do not necessarily represent those of his employer. Micah, I'm uh, very excited to talk to you today about your article. Uh, it was sent to me by our friends at Young Voices. It was an op-ed in the Salt Lake Tribune about the Great Lake, the Great Salt Lake. It's like a tongue twister for my Hoosier tongue. Excuse me. And proper incentives. And uh, let let's start with you. Let tell me how you got in the water game. I. I I wouldn't think that researching water would maybe be something you went to school for, but why does that interest you, and how did you get into this? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you you inadvertently mentioned the Great Lakes, which is actually where I grew up. I grew up in Michigan, uh, surrounded by, by the Great Lakes, and now I uh, live fairly close to the Great Salt Lake. Um, I, I got started in water in, in 2015. Um, I started. I, I got a job uh, as a young man with with uh, very little idea of what I wanted to do with my life, working for a local water company at, here in Utah. Um, in fact, the the town that I live in now, uh, and just basically as a laborer and and uh, driving dump trucks and reading water meters. Um, and that was where I first became exposed to the the, the issue of water in the West. Uh, I had never understood water as something that that would that could ever be scarce. I had always turned on my my tap, and water had always come out my entire life. And I'd only just recently moved to Utah, and I came to understand that here in Utah, people uh, there there is a special concern because it is it is uh, in short supply around here. And that was really where it all started. I eventually went back to school and um, wanted to study political science. I loved to write. And uh, began getting internships in, in congressional offices and state legislature, uh, working with legislators who were very concerned about this issue. And it was, I would think to myself, "Oh, that's funny. I used to, I used to work for this local water company, and and I began seeing seeing how the 
this 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 issue is is something that affects us every day here out west. It's it's an everyday concern. Um, we see our rivers getting lower. We see the Great Salt Lake when we drive by it. When we fly into in Salt Lake City, uh, we see how the lake is receding, and we even sometimes see the dust that the that that the the lake exposed lake bed is blowing into the air. And so it's it's becoming less abstract. Uh, seemingly every year, it becomes less of an abstract issue um, as it as it starts to, to become more of a real thing. Um, and this is especially true for those who who farm, who grow, uh, and and need that water to make a living. They they see the water in their ditch uh, running through their field. They they see it running low. It's not abstract at all. So it, it's it's become not just a very interesting issue, but I think one that that um, is actually very important and 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 actually I, I think for me just just you know I drive a great amount of satisfaction uh, thinking and reading and writing and learning about this very important issue uh, just just be careful your mic's rubbing on your shirt a little bit um, no you're good I mean you you're you as a Michigander me as a Hoosier we understand what it's like just to sort of always have water and irrigation's not a problem and we have a healthy water table and a lot of rain and to be honest here in Indiana it didn't hit our radar that Lake Mead for instance was going down until you know the mob's body started showing up and then all of a sudden I started watching this YouTube channel of two fishermen who were kind of documenting that drop in Lake Mead and and just a couple of regular guys kind of showing this precipitous quick drop over the summer in Lake Mead. Um, and obviously you're talking about the Great Salt Lake, which I did not – I was not even aware that there was an issue with that lake dropping. What is causing – uh, water tables to drop with these these great lakes, these gigantic lakes in the American Southwest to drop. What is causing it? Well, it kind of depends on the lake. Uh, the Great Salt Lake, the wa- water leaves the Great Salt Lake primarily through evaporation. That's really the only way it, it leaves the lake. And so, what what is causing it to the 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 levels to decrease? Is that there is less water flowing into it, and re- and really that is, I guess, that is the one cause that is contributing to all of these these uh, decreasing lake levels, um, and and in the ter- the Great Salt Lake, that is primarily due to human use. Um, however, drought is also a big part of it, and there's kind of those two things play off of each other. And the when, when you're looking at more like Lake Mead or Lake Powell, which is which are the two large reservoirs on the Colorado River. Um, those are reservoirs where, where water flows out of them past the Glen Canyon and then later the Hoover Dam. And so those lake levels are low because of drought. There's less, the, the Colorado River is low. Those lakes are low because the Colorado River is low. And then we are you know, releasing most of that water down past the dam or dams. And so that the, the drought and human use are the two primary reasons um, there's not much we can do about the drought, but there's a lot we can do about human use. So give me a size and scope of the problem in the American Southwest as a whole before we talk about specifically conservation with the Great Salt Lake. Um, is it, if you live in Southern California, should you have a go bag and dig up your silver in the backyard? Is it that dire? Or 
you know, with some smart steps, we can make this manageable for people in Arizona, Colorado, Utah? So just generally speaking, it is, it is very dire. Um, I'm not going to recommend anyone, you know, bury their, their wealth in their backyard just yet. But, uh, I, I would say that the primary concern on the Colorado River is is Lake Powell and the Glen Canyon Dam. Uh, the Glen Canyon Dam is is the one, the major dam upstream of the Hoover Dam, and it's in southern Utah, and r- right along the Arizona Utah border. And it generates electricity mostly for northern Arizona and a lot of the the uh, Navajo reservations um, reservation and. That is a a real concern because the as the lake levels decrease, the the dam's ability to generate hydroelectric power is compromised, and that is increasingly looking like something that very well could happen um, within the next year. It really depends on the uh, the snowpack for this year. You know how much snow is going to fall. Um, in Colorado, Wyoming, and to a lesser degree, Utah, uh, because that is the snow that melts, then goes down the mountains and into the Colorado River. So it, that is pretty serious. That that would mean uh, a significant increase in the cost of electricity in those areas. Um, but then agriculture is is also a major concern, and that is more of a concern in Southern California um, because of the the as the the river levels are so low, there's just less water to go around for everyone. And Southern California agriculture is a huge user of that water. They they are the the biggest user of Colorado river water is Southern California ag. Um, And so that is, we're just looking at a situation where they have to conserve, they have to make major cuts. Um, You know, we're, we're talking cuts of, of, 50%, Fifty percent, uh, which is which is massive. And I read an article that in LA, for instance, thirty percent of the water is used for golf courses, and so they're trying to build sustainable golf courses that match the climate, as opposed to trying to have lush green grass uh, at, at every hole. That's right. That's right. Um, I'm I'm a little surprised at that thirty percent number. Um, it is very high, though. It it is you know in Southern California. Uh, Arizona and Utah um, and, and Nevada, um, you know, it's the, the that's the lower Colorado River, Colorado River Basin, and they use significantly more water than the upper Colorado River Basin. So let's talk about uh, your article, which is will be in the show notes, and it's titled "Proper Incentives Will Save the Great Salt Lake, Not the Public Tra- Trust Doctrine." Give us a little bit of for those of us who are geographically challenged and maybe haven't seen the Great Salt Lake or learned about it since third grade. What is it? Where is it located? And what's happening with it that it needs to be saved? Sure. So the Great Salt Lake is located in uh, in northern Utah. It's it's right next to Salt Lake City, obviously. Uh, it is very close to most of Utah's population center. Um, that is what we call the Wasatch Front. It's where about 75% of the population of Utah lives within, I would say, probably an hour an hour's drive or maybe an hour and a half's drive from the shores of the Great Salt Lake. And so it, the Great Salt Lake is is unique in that it is a terminal lake. That is that no water runs out of it. Um, the only way water leaves is evaporates, like I mentioned earlier. And what that means is that any nutrient, any nutrient or any 
any substance, any sediment that flows into it stays there forever. And that includes salt. That's why, why the, the lake has such high salinity levels. But it also includes toxins. Any, any trace um, chemicals, any trace material, uh, uh, metals, um, arsenic, any of that that flows into the lake from you know, industrial activity, anything else, is going to stay in the lake forever. So as the lake levels decrease, as the lake dries up, then those toxins are left behind and they, they are left behind in the, the, the lake bed. And they get concentrated, right? That's right. That's right. And, and they eventually, that that lake bed dries and those toxins uh, are basically turned into dust and that dust gets into the air and that these, these toxic, uh, this, this, this uh, uh, air quality concerns have been well-documented along the Wasatch Front, along the, the, in the area of the Great Salt Lake. And uh, as the lake continues to, to dry up, those toxins will only increase, that they will only become more prevalent in the air. And we've seen this in other parts of the world. What makes the Great Salt Lake unique is that there's so many people that live near it. Um, we're, we're talking a couple million people that live near the Great Salt Lake. It's a, it is a huge environmental concern. It's, I mean, it's, it's in crisis level. And, and when you, when you come here to Utah and and you talk about uh, some of the things Utahns are concerned about, that is getting increasingly high on the list um, as it should be. And so there's been a lot of discussion about how do we get, how do we fix this? And the the easiest, most obvious answer is to get water back in the lake. Uh, which means we need to conserve water. Now, there's other ideas too. There's talk of of piping water from the Pacific Ocean <laughs> and other things like that, which are far fetched to say the least. Yeah, you got to build a pipeline, right? Which brings all kinds yeah. of concerns, like we see with you know the pipeline in South Dakota, for instance. That's right, and and I mean at, at least it would have water or salt water instead of gas, but you right. do have to pump it. You have to pump it over the Sierra Nevada mountains, which is. Um, and, and I would think that you'd add a lot of bacteria and salt, which and maybe salt. the salt kills the bacteria, but that, you know, that would offset maybe the, the natural balance of it. Yep. So, so do the people around the lake use the water for, you know, their, you say nothing comes out, meaning it's not attached to a river. Uh, is it filled with runoff from snow in the mountains and then that's how it, it fills up and then is it drained using f- for commercial water essentially i don't know how to how would you phrase that water that you use yeah so the there are three major rivers that flow into the great salt lake and all three of them are rivers that that flow from the mountains in this area two of them from the wasatch mountains and then and then the a third that's from both the, the Uinta and Wasatch Mountains. And so, yeah, this is all snow runoff that, that melts and then it's, it flows into the lake. The problem is, is that we use that water before it gets to the Great Salt Lake. We use a great deal of it. Um, we, it's our drinking water. It is the water we grow crops with. Um, it's used in industrial, uh, industrial processes and, and mining. And uh, that, that means there's less water that goes into the lake. Okay. Okay. So how I'm completely ignorant of that concept. Um, How do we take water out of the rivers to use it other places? Like, 
I mean, in my mind, in my cartoon brain, there's like a giant funnel that, that a farmer just stuck into the river. You know, how, how do you extract water from a river and then port it over to become, you know, water? Just give me like a basic tutorial of how that works. Sure. So it's, it's a series of canals. And so we, we build canals that, uh, that turn into irrigation ditches. And they and the, the, really the big user is agriculture, right? So it's something like sixty three percent, I think, is the number. Sixty three percent of of the water in in the Great Salt Lake watershed is used for agriculture, and so I should say the diverted water, the water that we take out of the rivers. Um, so when we divert water, we build a canal, and it just flows into the canal. Rather, some of it flows into the canal rather than staying in the the riverbank. And so uh, that that kind of those it becomes a network of canals that that go to each individual field and farm and um, and then that is basically we we need ways to keep track of this water we we meter it and we're doing a better job of that of metering this water of knowing where it's going how much it's going is going where and um, and then it's it's used you know in if that that is primarily how it'd be used for agriculture. Um, when you're looking at more like municipal use, like the water that comes in, into your house, um, in the Intermountain West, we primarily use groundwater, and so it's it's a well, and so we're we're digging wells, and and water is coming up through the well. But that is still the same water that ultimately would go to the rivers anyway. We're just kind of catching it earlier in that case. So we're digging a well, um, often high in the mountains, and then. That water is is you know instead of coming in through a canal or a river, it's coming in through pipe, and uh, and we'll treat it, and then it, it comes to our house. So essentially, the conversation about the Great Salt Lake is using less of the water from the rivers so it fills more. And what is being proposed? What is the prevailing proposal? Because I'm guessing it's probably a bad idea. And then we'll talk about your solution on the other side. Right. Well, there's a few uh, ideas, and the the case I would make would actually be that in the case of Utah, um, we're more and more implementing the good ideas. What I was responding to in this article was actually a, a proposal that is that I think has been around longer, and you also see more often outside of Utah, and that is basically it's eminent domain for water, um, and it's the idea that that water, like any other natural resource, like land or wildlife belongs to the public and therefore the public through the government has the right to regulate it and uh, i i don't think that that is that that necessarily follows but even if it did it would be uh, it would not be practical it wouldn't it wouldn't work the way that that we would intend and so what what is being proposed by by some in utah is what is called public trust doctrine and that's that's the idea that that this that this water belongs to the public, and therefore the Utah State Legislature would be justified in claiming a parts of the water rights that that farmers have to grow their crops. And so farmers have have farmers typically actually have water shares that are uh, that come from a a larger water right held by a canal company. That would uh, and the, but those water rights are still granted by the state of Utah, and so the proposal would just be to for the state of Utah to basically rescind the rights that it has already given, or to at least rescind part of it. Say you actually don't have a right to use this water, 
um, because this is there, there is a public trust that we have that we have to fulfill. In, and we're going to to use this to conserve water, and you will not be allowed to use it to grow. So, in other words, you're going to basically pull the rug out from businesses and jobs. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and my what what uh, what my point in the article is, is saying is that 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 would actually have precisely the opposite effect, and that what we instead need to be doing is to is to find ways to incentivize conservation to uh, to allow farmers. To, to make conservation profitable for them. And so, it, yeah, to, to best understand this, you, you kind of have to understand um, where these, these farmers have the right to their water. And that is that they, kind of, they get a share from a canal company. And a company is just a conglomerate of, of, of individual property owners, or individual growers or water users in a regional area. And they have come together and have acquired a right to a large amount or, or a significant amount of some rivers water or maybe a couple of rivers water. And, and what the farmer has is he has a share in that company. And so what I am proposing is that we, we pursue policies that make those water shares more valuable, make them more worth buying, selling, uh, using, but using carefully because they're now more valuable. And that is, I think Utah has actually done a really good job in the last couple of years of making that the case. And I think it's going to have a positive effect. I think, I think conservation, we've already seen huge savings in conservation in the last couple of years in Utah. And I think we will only see more. This is kind of a weird um, analogy, but it sort of confirms what you're saying. And in the racing world, you have a confederation like NASCAR or F1. And then you have a certain number of licenses. So you basically have to buy in, right? So Michael Andretti, for instance, wants to buy an F1 team. Well, nobody wants to issue him a charter because they all have a pool of money that they take from equally, and no one wants to dilute the amount of money that each team is getting. They don't want to go from a million a race to 750000 a race. It doesn't benefit them to add that other team. You know, or NASCAR, if you want to buy, you have to buy the license to be in the team. But, you know, back in the old days of, you know, racing on Daytona Beach, anybody and everybody showed up and it just didn't have this, a car, a team number didn't have the same value that it does now. And so you have better stewards in IndyCar F1 and NASCAR because there's value that has been established by these metals, basically. Um yeah. You know, and so people who are team owners aren't aren't fluid or transient. They're deeply invested in the actual success of the sport. That's right. Yeah, and and I think that that what you see is that when when there's more of an incentive to succeed, uh, you know, in, in like in racing, it, when the 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 winner is going to earn more, there's there's more of incentive to to commit to buy in, and and the same same way with with the water. If you own a share of of you know a, a water share, you have you don't you actually technically don't own the water, but you have the right to use it and to dispose of it as you will. And th- though it does have to be beneficial use, which is you know an, an important, but to uh, 
when that share is valuable, then you're going to be more careful with it. Whereas if there was a threat of, of the state, that is like the state of Utah, uh, coming in and seizing part of it, then as long as that hasn't happened yet, you don't have you actually have an incentive to to kind of be reckless with it. And it, and it also it it decreases the investment in water conservation generally. There, there's now less money in owning a share if you know there's a possibility of it coming in and being seized. And so I, I just want to to protect these water shares, these rights as assets and to make them something that, that, that can be better bought and sold rather than just like this kind of um, amorphous sort of uh, unclear allowance from the state that we're just going, we're going to let you until we decide you can't anymore. <laughs> and that, that to me is troubling. And, be- and because it, then all of a sudden, well, what's, uh, we I literally just uh, I'm batch recording these and we were talking about a different issue, but it's the same exact principle. Um, if you're a company that at two percent has just planned for two percent inflation, then all of a sudden the government says our new baseline's four percent, then you go, well, they can just change it on me at any time. Why invest? Right. That's exactly. Yeah. So you need predictability. You need sustain. You know, you need kind of the the predictability of what you're offering. As opposed to this is ours, let me take it. Yeah, the the stability that that stability is part of the value, and there's already what's what's hard is that there's already an incredible amount of instability in this field in this world, just because we are are uh, dependent on on weather patterns. You know, we we could have a bad year, and we had one. You know, two winters ago was a really bad winter. And uh, last winter wasn't much better. And that is already a lot of instability just right there. And what, what is being proposed through this public trust doctrine is just another layer of instability. I'm going to have to do this to you. I hate to do it, but I'm going to have to put on my uh, progressive hat here and just say I can't think of anything more unstable than the free market. We're in this situation because of unfettered capitalism, Micah. And I just don't know why you'd want to enshrine generational wealth into the hands of, of a few people to own the resources of the people. Um, why, why would you want to give, use the power of the government to give the few uh, control over uh, something that we all need? Well, the, the whole idea here is that it is, it is, water is going to be distributed to where it is needed most. And so I think you'll find that, that a great deal of farmers are willing and able to lease out their shares when they, when they determine that they don't need it. And this actually is a problem. Uh, There is a problem that arises here in that uh, when you, when you make water more of an asset, you then allow conservation. You could allow for conservation by saying you get to keep that asset uh, as if you can lease it out for conservation. And that was just that, a bill that, that allowed that here in Utah was just passed uh, earlier this year. The problem is then who is going to pay for that? Who is going to pay to have that water do nothing, just sit in a stream and go back to the Great Salt Lake? 
And that is where the, the state of Utah will come in and has come in and was able to pledge something like $40 million with $40 million in matching funds uh, from private, uh, private donors, saying the state will now lease water for conservation. And, and so what I'm actually allowing a great deal for the state and, and uh, it's actually a, a great testament to Utah, uh, Utah's fiscal responsibility, balanced budget year after year. Um, this year, they're looking at, at running a $3.3 billion surplus uh, because they balance a budget every year. And uh, that w- the, some of that money will be able to, to go, will, will go to farmers, to shareholders, to, to, uh, to conserve water. And yeah, it is, it is going to the, these holders of uh, uh, these, these wealthy, wealthy holders of, of, you know, these water share, these water rights holders. Um, I put wealthy in quotes because many of them are, are just, they're just farmers who have, you know, they families farmed on this land for generations. They may be, um, they, they may be wealthy, but they're cash poor. I'll tell you that. Um, and uh, so, there is a place for the state to come in and, and the state of Utah is doing it and I applaud them for it. I know our conception of a farmer now or one of one of these folks is Yellowstone. I got my own helicopter, which yeah. is not, not the case. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for, for kind of, you know, is there anything that I missed maybe from the article that we didn't cover that, that you want to touch on really quickly? Well, I, I think just that uh, this is, unfortunately becoming increasing like a, almost like a partisan issue uh, where, where it, it you know, cause farmers and, and agriculture, the support for agriculture does tend to come from one side of the political spectrum um, in, in Utah. And I think throughout the West and, um, and there's kind of a, and it is the side that often opposes the, uh, the kind of intrusive government practice that, that you see in this public trust doctrine. Um, but the, I, I think one of the one of my hopes for this article was that uh, it, it point out that it may feel good to punish. Uh, it, it may feel good to punish these farmers by taking away um, something that's so important to them, like their water, and 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 giving it to the Great Salt Lake. Um, but I, I actually think that 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 it wouldn't even work. It wouldn't even work because you that water is still running through a ditch on their farm. And unless you're going to have agents of the state at every farm, at every ditch, at every valve. Um, Oops, my dynamite just went off. <laughs> yeah. You are not going to be able to enforce something like this. Um, it, it's not going to be enforceable. And, and, and you basically make these threats that it will be made illegal to use it. You're actually taking away the incentive they have to conserve um, out of their own, you know, free will and choice. So, all right, Micah, shameless self promotion time. Where can people follow if you they want to know more about this topic? Sure, I mean you can follow me on Twitter, um, Micah M I C M I C A H R Safeston S A F S T E N. Just at Micah R Safeston on Twitter, and um, I post you know what I write about mostly uh, issues related to my home state of Utah and uh, water in the West. So. All right. Very good. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. It was fun. 
And thank you, dear listener, for being a part of the show. If you learned something, and I know you did because I learned something, then please share it with your friends. That is the best way to help any podcast that you love grow. And uh, we are guessing if you got to the end of the podcast, you love us. So please give us a share. We really do appreciate it. Word of mouth is huge. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.